1: All right. Tonight on the readout.
2: My father always kept
3: clippings, um, you know, press clippings. He'd have you know, newspaper articles, pictures, notes from us.
4: Quite honestly, I'm concerned that they may have planted something.
5: In 2017, former President Obama. You might have forgotten this. The New York Post remembered. They shipped 30 million pages
2: of sensitive and possibly classified materials to Chicago.
1: All right, and now Trump and his advisors have yet a new excuse for why Trump kept classified documents. Plus, Arizona used to give us Republicans like John McCain. Well, now the fringe is firmly in control of the party there with election deniers and extremists rising to the top. Also tonight, an important victory in Michigan for reproductive rights, but across the country, more young girls are being forced to give birth. And fresh off her defeat in the Wyoming primary, Liz Cheney is blasting Kevin McCarthy and has some thoughts on the possibility that he, could potentially be the next speaker. Good evening, everyone, I'm Tiffany Cross and tonight for Joy Reid, and we begin with the ever-evolving excuses from Donald Trump and his team over why classified documents, including some classified at the highest levels, were even at his Mar-a-Lago residence in the first place. Now, as hard as it may be to believe, there's actually a pattern to these excuses. Steve Laddick, he's a law professor at the University of Texas, he laid out the stages of Trump's denial brilliantly. One, it didn't happen. Whatever happened wasn't a big deal. Someone else did it. Whatever happened isn't illegal. The president can't be liable for whatever happened. Well, Obama did it too. Who cares if the president did it and it's illegal? You know, if that sounds familiar, it's because that tweet is actually from 2018 when Trump was trying to defend himself from the Mueller investigation. And yes, that was true in 2018 and is still true today. Deny and deflect in any way you can. And just last night, we got the latest explanation for the twice impeached former president's actions from his former and current personal attorneys. He just wanted to keep the documents safe.
5: Mm-hmm. And now... They want to make them responsible for having taken classified documents and preserved them. Really, if you look at the Espionage Act, it's not really about taking the documents. It's about destroying them or hiding them or uh, giving them to the enemy. Right. It's not about taking them and putting them in a place that's roughly as safe as they were in in the first place.
4: Mar-a-Lago is secure in and of itself. You know, just getting onto the compound is hard. And then it was a locked door and getting, you know, back down into the basement. There's security. You can't just walk down there. Only certain members of staff can get there. And then there's only one key. So, uh, yes, Mm. it's a very limited number of people that have access down there.
1: We'll talk about that in a bit. But of course, if Trump's true concern was actually to keep the classified documents safe, documents, by the way, which he initially claimed were probably planted there by FBI agents. But wouldn't the best place be to keep them safe at the National Archives? I mean, honestly, at this point, they will say just about anything to further muddy the waters, regardless of how absurd it may be, because so many people out there will believe him. And that includes this ridiculous claim that everything was already declassified because Trump had a standing order mm -hmm, that materials taken from the Oval Office to the residents should be considered declassified. Okay, if that were true, few people in the Trump White House were even aware of it. So CNN is reporting that 18 former top Trump administration officials say they never heard any such order issued and they believe the claim to be patently false. Yeah, we did, too. That includes two of Trump's former chiefs of staff, by the way, John Kelly telling CNN, quote, nothing approaching an order that foolish was ever given. And Mick Mulvaney saying he was, quote, not aware of a general standing order like that. And second, even if you accept that the standing order thing to be true, it is legally irrelevant based on the three federal criminal statutes listed on the search warrant that was unsealed last week. That is because none of the statutes depend on whether documents contain classified information. Now, it's likely Trump's legal team knows all of this, but how else can you mount a defense for this ridiculousness? It may also explain why yesterday, why a judge was hearing arguments over why parts of the search warrant affidavit should be unsealed, allowing us to see at least some of the evidence backing the FBI's actions. Now, Trump's legal team did not make any motion to unseal it. They only watched from the public seating area. We're going to talk about that, too. Let's bring in Clint Watts. He's a former consultant for the FBI Counterterrorism Division, a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and an MSNBC national security analyst. And we have with us this evening Bradley Moss. He's a national security attorney. Bradley, I want to start with you. We have a lot to get to, but I'm just going to start off with the lies themselves. Could these false statements, these lies that Trump uh, routinely makes, could they be introduced in any of the multiple legal proceedings against him as having demonstrated a pattern?
3: Of lying. Sure, the entirety of information would be available to the government, although what will be most critical is what was directly conveyed, not on Truth Social or in any press release, but between his lawyers and the FBI and National Archives officials that have been coordinating with his staff for the last 18 months. We know that they. it was months ago that the uh, NARA initially found that there was records missing. We know 15 boxes were retrieved in February. We know ongoing negotiations continued that a subpoena was issued in June. More classified documents were taken out that apparently one of the lawyers for Donald Trump actually signed an affidavit saying there were no more records. And yet the government had sufficient evidence to get this search warrant. And lo and behold, they found more classified records. All that would come into play.
1: Clint, I want to bring you in because uh, you just heard what Bradley said. So this whole idea um, that Mar-a-Lago was a safe space. Uh, let's take a listen to um, what uh, Bob Small had to say about that. And we'll talk about it on the other side.
4: Our team believed that it was secure enough. They asked for one more lock at another lock, which we did. Uh, and then for whatever reason, they decided that they still needed to raid the place. And only one or two people had access to that room, to your knowledge? That's my understanding. I mean, I would have to check with, you know, the, the maintenance of that area. But my understanding is very small number of people that could get in there.
1: And apologies. That's, of course, Christina, Bob. Um, Clint, what she's saying, uh, one, does that make sense? And two, does it make a difference? Um, you know, when it, the FBI went in there with good, good reason, I would imagine, does it make a difference that they're saying that only one or two people um, had access to it, despite that apparently being false as well?
2: You know, Tiffany, just a small number of random people had access to classified documents right. in the basement of a What is essentially a hotel and wedding facility? I mean, what could possibly go wrong in that scenario? Um, Seriously. No. On both accounts, it it does not matter. It's absolutely ridiculous. She even admitted in her own statement, she does not know who has access to it or when it was accessed or any of these things, which is the opposite of the National Archives or any SCIF uh, where they would keep classified information inside the government. Ridiculous on all accounts. I think the biggest thing is they didn't even know what they had or didn't seem to know what they had so how would they know even if that room was entered into what was there and what was accessed it's ridiculous on every single part of this chain of custody and that's what we would have inside a government space by the way is a chain of custody for every piece of classified information which would track to every system that's there everyone would be logged in and out uh, this item would be controlled or that item would be controlled and it's just completely ludicrous so even in the response she both said there was nothing to worry about but she also didn't know it's just crazy on on it on the surface so all the way through that yeah. explanation
1: Well, you have worse experience in government than Donald Trump did. His first job in government was as president. Good job, America. Um, I want to stick with you here, Clint, because um, I'm curious, you know, we on the media, obviously we have vested interest in knowing what's in this affidavit. You know, we try our best to relay information uh, to the people uh, of this country. Um, But I do understand why there are reasons why the affidavit should stay sealed. I'm just curious, because you're on the law enforcement side, counterterrorism side, uh, what your thoughts are about unsealing? affidavit? And if the judge happened to ask your opinion, uh, what might you advise the judge when it comes to unsealing the affidavit?
2: So in general, I would say absolutely not, because you want to trust whoever the confidential informants and sources are and what methods you use to gather information. You want to also make sure that it's correct, because in these affidavits, when they're going to do these search warrants, they're trying to gain more evidence to confirm what they believe is a criminal conspiracy. So in any of these affidavits, there's the potential that something could be not quite right, that they would learn and correct based on what they find in the search warrant. That's the whole point of this. It's an investigative process, just like a scientific hypothesis, where you're trying to gain evidence to confirm what you think you know and then bring uh, a charge. I think there is one exception to this. I think we've learned it over the last decade, particularly in the social media era, but definitely during the Trump administration, which is If many falsehoods, a fire hose of falsehoods are going to be levied against the Department of Justice and those uh, agents and investigators and attorneys that have been working on these cases, the best way to quickly thwart those uh, conspiracies is to get the truth out. And I think what they're trying to balance here is how they keep really investigative secrecy around the investigation intact, try and protect sources and methods, while also trying to really protect the conscience of the American public about what really happened and what's really going on. It's a tough balance. Uh, to keep that privacy and security going and make sure the American public is really informed on what's going on.
1: Yeah, that is a tough balance. Bradley, I'm curious from you, what um, what does accountability or what should accountability look like uh, for Donald Trump here?
3: Yeah, look, if this were anybody else, they wouldn't have taken 18 months to do this. They would have seized those records months ago and an indictment probably already would have occurred. But this is a former president. There are issues of potential declassification in play, even if under the Espionage Act, it's not technically required for the information to be classified. So you would think there would be likely, depending on what they've collected and what the information we already have, that there will be an indictment here. That certainly would be viable from a legal perspective, uh, in my view. Part of what they're running down right now, and we've got confirmation media reporting, was there actually a standing order? What did it look like? No one seems to know about it, but at least Donald Trump seems to think there was one. What did it look like? How was this all handled? And how were these boxes put together in the first place? It sounds ridiculously chaotic.
1: Extremely chaotic. And Clint, I want to ask you a question about this Blue Lives Matter party, because I am old enough to remember when they were purporting themselves to be pro-law enforcement. Yet today, uh, Trump wrote on his Twitter wannabe uh, social media platform, uh, when will people realize that the atrocities being perpetrated by the FBI and the DOJ having to do with the raid and break in my home? He went on to say, they are destroying our country. This is further attacking and vilifying the FBI and the DOJ. We have seen what that type of uh, rhetoric does to his millions of followers, many of whom are armed um, and likely uh, unstable, the fact that they're declaring war with uh, the FBI with things like a nail gun and an AR-15. AR- um, how much does this concern you?
2: Quite so. And I think it's really the, the end point of a long sort of breakage between the federal, state, and local government in many places. You could do it in everything from false electors Uh, to break down the CDC communications on public health to many of the different states during the pandemic. And then when you look at federal law enforcement, their most essential partners are state and local law enforcement. And there's been a wedge driven between those and driven inside those organizations over the last four to five years. You've seen similar dynamics with the military, although it's stayed relatively more intact, I think, than federal and state and local law enforcement. The big question then is, how do we enforce laws across the country evenly? Uh, who is going to carry those out. You have things such as the constitutional sheriff's movement, where they think they don't need to abide by federal law or even work with federal law enforcement. And then the bigger picture is something terrible happens in a jurisdiction where the FBI has been so degraded by Trump's rhetoric, a strong Trump district, let's say, and the FBI can't develop sources. Uh, They can't work with state and locals. They can't move an investigation forward. That doesn't help anybody but Donald Trump, but it definitely hurts those constituents of the United States that depend on the FBI ever more in a cyber environment, by the way, where crimes cross over borders, to do their job and protect the citizens of the United States.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine if a Black Lives Matter activist had said something similar how the right might be reacting to that. But a subject for another time. Thank you, Clint Watts and Bradley Moss, for being here and coming up next on The Readout. Arizona is still a swing state. So why have Arizona Republicans swung so far to the fringe rights? The readout is going to get into that right after this break. Don't go anywhere.
6: Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future.
1: All right. In 2020, Joe Biden did something that no other Democratic presidential nominee had done since 1996, and that is when the state of Arizona. That's right. Biden won the state that was proudly home to Republican firebrands like Barry Goldwater, Jan Brewer, and Joe Arpaio. Now, you would think that the Arizona Republican Party would take a second and maybe reevaluate their strategy after a loss like that, right? Oh, no, 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 no. They put all their chips in on the MAGA train. And yesterday on Twitter, that same Arizona Republican Party accused a mother and teacher who's running for re-election for state superintendent of public schools, they accused her of being a, quote, groomer. Now, I'd understand if you thought that kind of low-class rhetoric is a fluke from some low-level staffer, but no, no, not so fast. Let me introduce you to the standard bearers of Arizona's modern Republican Party. Let's start with former TV news anchor Carrie Lake, a woman who voted for Barack Obama, but now parrots the big lie.
7: Let me tell you this. There are no good guys in corporate media. They don't exist. If there were good guys, they would be telling us about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin.
3: You've called Joe Biden an illegitimate
7: president. What does that mean?
6: he lost the election and he shouldn't be in the White House. We had a corrupt election.
7: Don't tell me Joe Biden won 81 million votes. Don't insult my intelligence. I refuse to have it.
1: Okay, then there's Secretary of State candidate, Mark Fincham. He's currently a state legislator and actually tried to decertify the Arizona election But he failed. Oh, and let me not forget, he's also a member of the Oath Keepers, the right-wing paramilitary group you guys know. And yeah, there's this little fun fact. He actually attended the Capitol insurrection. In a revealing new piece in Politico, a fellow Republican in the Arizona House was shocked at Fincham's success, given that, quote, Mark is known as the guy that's probably the dumbest, well, there's a long list, but one of the dumbest legislators in the state House. Yeah. Then there's Blake Masters. He's a Peter Thiel devotee who wants to unseat Senator Mark Kelly. And Masters claims that Trump won in 2020 and that if he was a senator in 2020, he would have objected to the results. Oh, but there's more about Masters. He also supports a federal personhood law, blames gun violence on black people, and peddles the great replacement theory that Democrats are trying to, quote, change the demographics of our country. Oh, and then there's this. Masters recently praised the Unabomber as an underrated thinker. We have a lot to talk about. So joining me now is Arizona State Senator Raquel Taran. She's chair of the Arizona Democratic Party and Tim Miller. He's a writer at large for The Bulwark and author of Why We Did It, a travel log from the Republican road to hell. Um, I have to start with you, Raquel. I I really don't know where to begin. So I will just ask you simply what the hell is happening with the GOP in Arizona? Because whatever is happening there, it has cast a dark shadow across the entire country
8: that's correct arizona sadly has a long history of extremists and you name a former sheriff arpaio state senator russell pierce who was the author of sb 1070 the show me your paper law by the way both of whom were ousted by the voters here in arizona but since the emergence of donald trump these extremists have taken over the arizona republican party Uh, they are down with the MAGA extremists and that agenda. So, candidates like Kerry Lake, Masters, Finchams are more concerned with the lies and Donald Trump than they are with helping Arizonans.
1: Yeah, it's quite frightening to see, Tim. And, you know, I'll push back a little bit um, on what Raquel said, because I actually don't think this began with Trump. Like, I remember Sarah Palin on the campaign trail. I remember a lot of the rhetoric that Ronald Reagan used. Um, I remember George W. Bush and uh, George Bush and his father. And so it feels like this was bubbling up for a long time. uh, And there was a lot of policy that was harmful. But Donald Trump simply said the quiet part out loud. What do you think, folks, like these never-Trumpers now who have served? Um, How can they take responsibility and help set the country on a different course? Um, Because some of this, it feels like this train has left the station and there might not be saving the Republican Party again.
5: Well, in Arizona, at least, uh, these number drummers can start by voting for Mark Kelly and uh, Katie Hobbs in the Senate and the governor race. That's going to be as important of a state in the country as far as protecting our democracy going forward, Arizona and uh, Pennsylvania. And, and and I think that it's important for Democrats to really talk to those voters. That Yes, it's true. There's always been extremists in the Republican Party. There's always been uh, rhetoric that exacerbated racial tensions. Uh, you know, we, we could go down the list, the worst hits list, but, but Arizona was also a state of people like Jeff Flake, who was an ever-trumper of John McCain, you know, who uh, uh, was a moderate Republican uh, and on a lot of issues, believed in climate change, saved Obamacare. The peop, the yeah. voters who liked Jeff Flake and John McCain, those voters, the Democrats absolutely need, and and Joe Biden won them in 2020. It's why Joe Biden won the state, and and, and we, it, we have to be abundantly clear about just how radical the Kerry Lakes and Blake Masters are. They are nothing like. The John McCain. Uh, these are absolutely insane people that are going to be happy to overturn the election on behalf of yeah. Donald Trump in 2024. They are they're pledging that they will do that. That is their that is the reason why they won their primaries. And and so I just think it's critical to kind of cleave those voters off in you know suburban Phoenix, the types of people that have been Republicans in the past, to to see these extremists for what they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, Raquel, Tim makes so many good points there. Uh, Donald Trump is clearly laying the groundwork to have any election results um, that the Republican Party doesn't like simply overturned. They're infiltrating the system uh, through random acts of violence. They're infiltrating the system by trying to be elected uh, to disrupt democracy. How will you navigate that in the state of Arizona, particularly given Mark Fincham? I mean, he is uh, a scary character. If he's elected, along with Kerry Lake, along with Masters, Arizona's got some problems.
8: Arizona and the country would have some problems, but I am confident in Arizona voters because, yes, like you said, even though this extreme agenda, MAGA agenda did not start with Donald Trump, Arizonans have shown that we reject uh, we reject extremism like we did with Sheriff Arpaio, like we did with Russell Pierce. And uh, I am confident that we are not going to let them win and we'll have our Democrats winning. But it is so dangerous because we all know that the road to preserving American democracy runs through Arizona this November. And that is precisely why we cannot allow Fincham or any of these election deniers win. And I. I have to make a point that the Republican uh, primary and this Republican primary, some of these some of these uh, candidates who are the most extreme did not win with the at least 50 percent. So we know that half of their party is rejecting them. And that's right, Tim. We as Arizona uh, Democrats are not only engaging our base, we're we're engaging our independent voters here in Arizona. And we are, are welcoming without compromising our values of the Republicans.
1: Yeah. Um, Tim, I want to ask you about uh, voter suppression, because in Arizona specifically, more than 80 percent of voters in Arizona uh, vote early mail or in person. Yet the GOP is moving forward with an election day in-person only voting law. Um, This is something that's happening all across the country. Again, this predates Trump. Voter suppression has always been a tool of the Republican Party. Um, Curious your thoughts of how people can navigate that. Um, Is there something that never Trumpers can do to help uh, alleviate some of this voter suppression? Because a lot of it comes out of the state legislature, um, and especially with partisan poll watchers and gun laws, we can see a lot of uncomfortable and potentially violent situations this midterm cycle.
5: Yeah, I, well, look, I'll defer to my counterpart on how they can navigate that this cycle. I will say right now, Democrat, you know, Doug Ducey is the governor. We have a Democratic secretary of state. So a lot of these law legislative rules are what would happen after 2022, looking to 2024. And I think yeah. that, in, that it is true that if the Republicans hold, have the state legislature, if Carrie Lake is the governor, if Mark Finchman is the secretary of state, There will be radical voter suppression laws, unlike we haven't seen anywhere else in the country in Arizona going ahead in 2024. And they will also change the rules about counting the ballots to make to make it easier for the legislature to override ballots that they don't deem credible, which is obviously going to be Democratic ballots, ballots from people in marginalized communities. That's a big threat in 2024. It's why people got to turn out in 2022 while there is, you know, rather lenient uh, early voting uh, rules in the state.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. And you know this very well, Tim, uh, that a lot of people turn out during those presidential elections and they use terms like it's an off year. There are no off years in elections. There's elections no off- happen no. every time at the state, federal and local level. So thank you both for being here. Arizona State Senator Raquel Saran and Tim Miller. Happy to share the screen with you again, Tim. It was good to see you. And still ahead, a judge blocks enforcement of Michigan's abortion ban as women and lawmakers try to make sense of America's new post-roll landscape. We're going to be right back right after this break.
0: You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
9: Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system
1: All right, well, abortion in Michigan will remain legal, for now, that is. This was after a judge ruled that county prosecutors cannot enforce a near-total abortion ban on the books since 1931. That's some much-needed good news right now in the fight for abortion rights, a fight that has really scrambled America's geography based on where one can or cannot receive care. And this new landscape is just as harrowing as we knew it would be. The consequences swift and brutal— Get this, a woman undergoing a miscarriage, she was sent home from the hospital, instructed to return when blood filled a diaper more than once an hour. Rape survivors, including children, forced to give birth. While in Florida, where apparently logic goes to die, a court denied a teenager an abortion, ruling she was not mature enough. To determine whether to terminate her pregnancy. This is a nightmare. Joining me now is Kelly Robinson. She's the executive director of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And I'm very happy to have you here, Kelly. Um, These stories are absolutely horrific and gut-wrenching to hear. Uh, There's another story out there. It's a woman in Louisiana who's pregnant her uh, pregnancy, she was diagnosed um, because essentially she has to go through a pregnancy, but her baby was diagnosed with something that's not curable. It's it's not survivable. And so essentially she's going to go through a pregnancy to give birth to a stillborn. I I just don't know how we protect abortion rights in this country right now. And it seems the only way is the judiciary. They seem to be the last line of defense.
7: This is a, horrific situation that we're in right now. We hear horrifying stories every single day of people being denied access to care, having to travel hundreds of miles, or being forced to carry their pregnancies to term. And at the end of the day, this is bigger than any single state, right? Their goal has been to sow chaos and confusion and deny our access to abortion care. I do want to make it clear, you know, in Michigan right now, for every Michigander that's listening, abortion is still safe and legal in Michigan. But as you said, we have work to do to actually ensure sure that we do all that we can in every way that we can to secure access. The courts are one way, but also abortion is on the ballot in 2022. The will of the people is here, and there is something that we can do about it.
1: Yeah, speaking of 2022, Planned Parenthood has raised, uh, I think, a whopping $50 million um, to defeat these types of uh, anti-choice. Uh, candidates and policies. Um, We'll see what impact that has. I do wonder, do you think we will ever see Roe reinstated?
7: Look, it's on the ballot this year. Who wins the midterm elections could quite possibly determine what states protect access to abortion and whether or not national politicians have the votes to realize their ultimate goal of a nationwide abortion ban, or if actually we get enough power this November to fortify more rights for abortion access, more gender equality than Roe ever provided. Roe was the floor, not the ceiling for care. Even with Roe in place, hundreds and hundreds of anti-abortion restrictions move through the states every single year. So, there is so much at stake this November. And the reality is that if we vote as the majority that we are, the 80% majority that we are, we can gain enough power in Congress and in states to change the nature of healthcare access in this country.
1: You know, there was a report out uh, from USA Today talking about uh, rural maternal health care crisis. And this is, you know, women who are intentionally trying to have babies and they have a challenge getting quality health care. Um, interesting, because you would think if someone was so, quote unquote, pro-life, as they like to call themselves, that they would focus on that and focus on caring for the women who don't have access to affordable care and not this. Um, For the women who are in these situations, like the woman who has to essentially carry a child to term who she knows will be a stillborn, the young girl in Florida, uh, the rape survivors, what recourse, if any, do these women have? What advice is Planned Parenthood giving these women who are facing these dire situations?
7: Well, I want to say this. The opposition is clear. This is not about people. This is about power. There are 16 Mm -hmm. states that have already banned abortion access. And I have to say, those states are at the bottom of the list when it comes to supporting mothers, families, and birthing people. They're at the bottom of the list when it comes to maternal health care, when it comes to infant mortality, child poverty. It's clearly not about people. So the things that we can do are, one, get all the information that we can to make sure that folks in our communities know how to access care. You can go visit websites like abortionfinder.org to get the health care that you need and find out how to get access. I'm also encouraging folks, if you're listening now, to think about you know giving to abortion funds. There's so much that we can do to make sure people get to access to care, and we also get care to people in all the ways that we can, even in this devastating moment.
1: Well, that's very helpful information. And Planned Parenthood's uh, Kelly Robinson, thank you so much for being here and offering some sort of uh, light and information to people who may be facing those incredibly dire circumstances. Thanks so much. Um, Who won the week is still ahead. But first, hear what Liz Cheney had to say about Republican House leader Kevin McCarthy. And it's not really what you'd call flattering, but it is sadly fitting. We're back after this.
0: my views about Kevin McCarthy are very clear. Uh, the Speaker of the House is the second in line for the presidency. Uh, it requires somebody uh, who understands and recognizes their duty, their oath, their obligation. And, and he's been completely unfaithful to uh, to the Constitution and demonstrated a total lack of understanding of the significance and the importance of, of the role of Speaker. So I don't believe he should be Speaker of the House.
1: All right, Liz Cheney speaking truth about wannabe Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying he's unfit to lead Republicans if they gain control of the House of Representatives. Now, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, just said the quiet part out loud this week, acknowledging that his party could fail to win control of the Senate due to candidate quality. Hmm. Wonder why. He has a good reason to be concerned. Even though it's still early, a slew of polls this week show Democrats leading in key states. New Fox News polls show that in Arizona, incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly is actually up eight points over Trump backed Republican Blake Masters. And in Wisconsin, Democratic nominee Mandela Barnes has a four point lead over incumbent Ron Johnson, who's essentially a Trump acolyte at this point. And meanwhile, in Florida, University of North Florida poll shows this week that Democrat Val Dimmings is leading incumbent Marco Rubio by four. He's another Trump acolyte, and there are currently no black women in the Senate. These will be interesting races. The hits just keep on coming for Republicans in a the year they thought would benefit them. The Click Political report has now declared control of the Senate a toss-up and moved the Pennsylvania Senate race between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz to lean Democratic. Uh, keeping with Pennsylvania, the outlook is so bad, according to Rolling Stone, even the former president thinks his guy, Dr. Oz, will, quote, effing lose. Well, we might think, lose it if that doesn't happen. Joining me now is to get into all of this. Terrence Woodbury, he's a Democratic pollster and strategist and Dean Obadala. He's host of the Dean Obadala show on SiriusXM, and my longtime pal. Happy to have both you guys here. Uh, great to see you. Let's start out. There are some really interesting races. Um, I'm watching Terrence. I do want to start out with uh, Wisconsin um, and Mandela Barnes and Ron Johnson. I mean, Ron Johnson has a slew of ridiculous statements, ridiculous policies. He's a Trump acolyte. Um, and Mandela Barnes, he's a young candidate. He's very thoughtful, very bright, very smart. Um, he was a lieutenant governor. He has government experience. This will be a very interesting race to watch. What are you hearing?
10: So thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. And in complete transparency, Mandela is a client of his strategies. Uh, and so we are, we are seeing exactly what what, what we're seeing across the country. That's, There has been a Democratic boost, a Democratic bounce in the past couple of weeks, and Democratic candidates are taking are are benefiting from that. And candidates like Mandela Barnes represent uh, uh, the the diversity and the the enthusiasm in the party and frankly, is overperforming Joe Biden and generic Democrats in Wisconsin, a candidate with with, uh, executive experience as lieutenant governor and with legislative experience uh, really demonstrating that uh, that millennials need need diverse voices in the Senate. Millennials now the biggest voting bloc in America, representing only three percent of the U.S. Senate. And so uh, I think I think Mandel, uh, candidates like Mandela are really demonstrating uh, what can happen when we put forth a diverse uh, uh, and a, a robust and robust and diverse slate of candidates.
1: Yeah. Well, we're watching. And Dean uh, Terrence made really good points there about Wisconsin. And even though politics are local, there's still a national narrative to this race uh, as control for the Senate is up for grabs. It's a toss up, according to Cook Political Report. Um, the administration had a pretty good week. Um, they had some accomplishments this week. I want you to take a listen to Ron Klein, and then we'll talk about messaging on the other side. hmm.
5: We now have a presidency where the president has delivered the largest economic recovery plan since Roosevelt, the largest infrastructure plan since Eisenhower, the most judges confirmed since Kennedy, the second largest health care bill since Johnson and the largest climate change bill in history.
1: Gene, how do you feel about the messaging coming out of the White House? Again, they, it's good that they're touting uh, some of their successes. Right. Um, who are they touting these uh, messages to, do you think?
11: Democrats and messaging don't usually go well together. Like, it sort of happens organically that they find it. Uh, here's the truth. I think talking about the accomplishments are great. This week, they signed the law of the Inflation Reduction Act, which will help my mother, who's a senior on Medicare. They're going to cap prescription drug price at $2,000. This will help my mom and over 60 million Americans. That's important. Talking about where we are in unemployment, 3.5%, tying the lowest in 50 years. And that's because of Biden' plan that we passed last year with COVID relief. But there's another part of this, Tiffany. That's GOP extremism. You've just been talking about that. That's got to be part of the Democratic message. Look what we're seeing. They are literally academically embracing fascism as a party. And I mean that in the terms of what that means academically. It's termed using acquisition or retention of political party power by threats of violence or violence. There's a CBS poll, Tiffany, recently nearly 60% of Republicans, nearly 60%, don't view January 6th as terrorism. They view it as an act defending freedom. You've got Donald Trump, the leader of their party. You have Republicans imposing their religious beliefs as law to oppress women. The Taliban should sue them for trademark infringement at this point. And you've got yeah. them banning books, banning Black History Month. And the list goes on and on. This is an extremist party. So Democrats, talk about your accomplishments. They're real. But don't forget, amplify the GOP extremism. because That's very real. And it's right in our face. And it's frightening.
1: Yeah. I mean, Z makes a good point there, Terrence. And when you think about the idea, the concept that Kevin McCarthy, who has completely lost his spine, completely given in to, to Trump, despite their little exchange around January 6th, where he actually said to him, allegedly, uh, reportedly, who the F do you think you're talking to? Um, when Trump told him, well, maybe the people care more about the election than you do. Um, all that went out the window. They're all bowing down to this MAGA king. So, I wonder what messaging um, that the people need to put out there, Terrence, to warn uh, voters of this is what a dystopian America will look like if, one, you don't participate, if you abstain, or two, you vote for the—you uh, vote down a Republican ticket.
10: Absolutely, Stephanie. I think Dean is absolutely right. We have to do both. We have to take credit for the progress that has been made, but we also have to demonstrate that the threat— uh that republic the existential threat, threat that republicans face this is why we have been promoting this message of unfinished business that democratic voters have unfinished business in 2022 because while we may have made progress on a, on a democratic agenda while we've made progress on prog- on progressive priorities we have unfinished business fulfilling many of those promises and and similarly while we made while we may have defeated Trump in 2020, we obviously have unfinished business defeating Trumpism. And we have to do both. But what we have to be careful with, as I was listening to Ron Klein, as we take uh, uh, credit for the progress that has been made, that we don't seem to be waving a victory, a, co- a mission accomplished flag here, that we acknowledge that people are still in pain and that while we are making progress, uh, there's still there's still a lot of work to do. And so uh, we do have to acknowledge the fact that uh, that 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 Donald Trump appears to be leading a, a crime syndicate, um, and 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 that we that that chaos that dis, the yeah. disorienting chaos of the Trump administration is not what we want to bring back. But I, I think that he's doing us a favor here, and the best thing that we could do is put Donald Trump back on the ballot in 2022 because it's the only way to defeat him before 2024.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I think uh, it's such a good point about um, the younger voters that you were talking about, uh, that the space that millennials take up. Uh, But we can't forget Gen Z voters. A lot of them are eligible um, to vote this year. So definitely reach out to them. Dean, you know this very well, that races are often won on the margins. Um, Yet we Mm -hmm. see time and again that so many communities are not being contacted by political parties. The AAPI community um, just recently released uh, a study there that most have not been contacted by a political party. We've seen the Latino community shift back and forth again. Many haven't been contacted by a political party. Uh, What do you think it will take for both these parties to recognize that the rising majority Majority will soon become the people to determine how this government is shaped.
11: Well, I hope Republicans never notice that and just keep playing to the base that they're playing to, which is shrinking. For our side, we have to get out there. I have representatives of various communities all the time on my radio show, and we talk about that. Sometimes they're reaching out, the message is getting heard, other times it's not. And they have to go where the people are. They have to go to their community and not just around election time, because that's the biggest slam I hear from all different minority communities. We see the elected officials around election time. Be a part of the community. Be there. Be there for them. Help them. Not just when it's time to cast the ballot, but when you need other things for your community to help. So, look, I I think it's time. Democrats should need to do more.
1: Yeah. Uh, I know a little something about that radio show you hosted. I used to be on it a lot with you. Uh, But we'll talk more about that on the other side. So don't go anywhere at home because Terrence and Dean are sticking around to play Who Won the Week? That's coming up next. So don't go anywhere. I got a good one. All right, trying to cover all the Trump foolishness is like trying to catch confetti this week. So we're at the end, finally, which means it's time to play. (music) Who won the week? Back with me are Terrence Woodbury and Dean Obadala. We're way over time, guys. So Terrence, very quickly, give me your who won the week.
10: I'm going to say Democratic candidates won the week uh, this week, Tiffany. I know there's an impulse to say Joe Biden won the week. Unfortunately, his approval rating hasn't reflected that. But as long as Republican candidates are being forced to defend Donald Trump, what they, Democratic candidates have uh, now have proof points in IRA that they are making a material difference in people's lives. They definitely won the week this week.
1: All right. I think that's a fair one. Dean, what do you got?
10: If it wasn't political,
11: I would pick you, Tiffany, for doing a great job hosting this week. But
1: <laughs> oh, in the thank
11: you. <laughs>
0: of
11: in, in, from the political world, it's John Fetterman, another Democratic candidate, Senate candidate, Pennsylvania his first week out on the campaign trail after having a stroke, and he raised over a half a million dollars off of Dr. Oz's horrific ad where Dr. Oz complained that him and his wife couldn't make a coup d'etat, which coup d'etat, I guess if you're running for president of the country club or the Hamptons, is what you do. The rest was called a veggie platter, and I'm glad Dr. Oz was crushed for that showing. He's not in touch at all with the people of Pennsylvania, just not working, yeah. not losing
1: Yeah agree. All right. I'm going to be really quick. Uh, The NBA won the week because they announced they would not hold games on November 8th to encourage people to vote. And they do such a better job than the NFL when it comes to civic engagement. Um, You guys remember in 2020, they were converting a number of their arenas to uh, voting um, locations. So congrats to the NEA and the good folks over there, especially LeBron James. All right. We got through it. That is tonight's readout. Joy Reid, don't you worry. She is back on Monday. I've been seeing all your tweets. She uh, will be back in this chair on Monday, and please be sure to join me tomorrow morning on The Cross Connection on my show. We'll have more on Donald Trump's many legal woes plus the other Republican candidates following in his footsteps. Trumpism is on the ballot this November, even if Trump isn't. We're going to talk about that. Plus if you're a parent, you absolutely know we're heading into the new school year with a teacher shortage. We'll take a look at some of the reasons why and we'll talk to the director of an Emmy-nominated documentary, Kanye West. Uh, It's called Genius. It's uh, a really amazing film. We'll have the filmmakers on with me. It's truly like, yay, like you've never seen it before. It's really good. So I'll see you guys tomorrow at 10 a.m. on The Cross Connection. Thanks so much for bearing with me this week while I fill in for joy.
0: You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around.